is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Greetings, everyone. In this week's episode, we're heading to the mailbag to answer your questions about 15 versus 30 year mortgages, investing in IPOs, and clarifying that 20, 30, 50 budgeting rule. <laughs> you guys can't get enough of that. All that and so much more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Well, hey, Buck Hartzell is here in the studio this month. Hi, Allison. Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me. Buck, did you know that you and I were ships in the night at a 12- and 13-year-old volleyball tournament in Philadelphia last weekend? Oh, I did not know you were in Philadelphia. I was. I was there rooting for the Rochester Mystic. Go, nice. go, cousin Ella. Nice. So, did you go to the Reading Terminal and get some good Philadelphia food? We did. We went to the Reading Terminal. Yeah, the tournament was right Excellent. there at the yeah. Philly Convention Center. Yeah. And I had never sat through a 12 and 13 year old girls' volleyball tournament, but it is surprisingly good. It's exciting. And your ears will never be the same because it's also a oh. kind of roar that goes over the crowd there. It's pretty loud after you've been in there about 20 hours. Yeah. 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 How'd you it's guys great. do? All right. We did very well. We qualified and got an open uh, national bid. So, so you're that's going a big to Indian- we are, Indiana. We are going to Indianapolis. We should make it clear that we're not talking about Buck playing volleyball. No. We're talking about no. his daughter. <laughs> that's right. Who, exactly. is a, who is a star. Yeah. Buck's yeah. daughter She's and my good. cousin. Who is, yeah. yeah. They, uh, they did not qualify. They went pretty far. Okay. Are, but oh, they nice. they still are still hoping to get in some other way. Okay. I don't know how this all works. It's very complicated. Different levels from open and then national and American. So yeah, that, that was maybe other chances for them to get in. And there's yeah. some other qualifiers going. Yeah, on. yeah, I think so. So anyway, that's fun. When bro, whenever you go to like big events where there's like a ton of people in like a room, do you ever think maybe someone in this room listens to this podcast? And would be mildly impressed if they knew that you were also in that room. Do you ever think that? No, not really. I think if they ever did meet me, they'd be like, oh, that's bro. <laughs> so you think mildly disappointed. I, so be like, mildly I kind of had a, I don't know, a different idea of what you'd look like. But hey, it's great to meet you. Yeah. <laughs> and then they would sit you down and be like, okay, so I've got X amount saved yes. in my Roth IRA. And I've got blah, 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 blah. All right, well. Buck, thank you again for joining us. And so we have a lot of questions to get to. So let's just get to them, huh? Let's do it. First question comes from Tony. I often hear Motley Fool hosts discussing Berkshire Hathaway and Markel as companies that invest in other companies and produce a nice annual return for shareholders. But since they buy stock in other companies, aren't they like buying an actively managed mutual fund instead of an individual company? Uh, great, great question, Tony. Yes. Uh, when you look at Berkshire and Markel, they're both kind of diversified companies, but they're different. Um, Berkshire is really big. They're over five hundred billion dollar company. And just to give an example, like one little piece of Berkshire Hathaway owns about two hundred billion dollars worth of publicly traded stocks. These are huge companies like Heinz and Crafts and Wells Fargo and American Express, those types of businesses, and they own big stakes in them. Um, where Markel is about a fourteen billion dollar company, so five hundred versus fourteen. So I'd say Berkshire's you know larger and more diversified than Markel is, but they both are doing the same thing. They own a whole other companies and diversified revenue streams. And I think they're a good idea to have in one's portfolio in addition to the S&P 500. And as a matter of fact, if you look over the last few years um, on the performance of the S&P 500 in aggregate, how much revenues grew and profits and that kind of stuff, um, Markel, I mean, Berkshire has grown much faster. Their performance has grown much better. And I actually like them better than the S&P 500, although you're not quite as diversified. And they trade about like the financials ETF. So you'll find them, they'll go down. So 2008, 2009, when the financial ETF went down about 37%, so did Berkshire Hathaway. So it trades with it. Um, 
but the business did much better. Um, I like the idea of having some Berkshire Hathaway or Markel in your portfolio. And I think right now Berkshire's a little bit cheaper, so maybe that's a good choice for you if you don't mind uh, having a, a company instead of just the S&P 500. And with Berkshire, there's always a lot of concern about it's Buffett. It's all about Buffett. Yeah, um, who's was, now 88. Who's now yep. 80. So there is, there's good reason to have some concern that he maybe is not going to live forever. Maybe he is the Night King. <laughs> Do the I actuarial don't know. tables say that? Yeah. yeah. I had to get one had Game of Thrones reference in. Um, but yeah, so is Markel similar in how it's structured? Is uh, there like is there one person at the top? Well, it's similar in that uh, it's been in the Markel family for a long mm. time. It's a third generation now that's running it, but their next group of leaders is already in place and running the business. So co-CEOs Richie Witt and Tom Gaynor are in their 50s. They're running the businesses while they're overseen by Stephen and Tony Markel and Mr. Kirshner, who was the CEO before. Um, so they have a younger group. I, I would also stress, though, I think the, I mean, nobody's as good as Warren Buffett is, and, and that's a fact. But he's not running all the individual businesses. Those are all run by great people. And now they're overseen by Greg Abel and Ajit John. Ajit is going to run the insurance businesses, and Greg will oversee the other businesses they have. And these are very capable, great people that they have in place. And all those people running those other businesses have done it themselves. Buffett has basically allocated the capital. And a few years ago, we hired people to help with that, too. So they're getting more and more. So the bench strength is really strong there. So I think, does anybody want to see Warren Buffett go? No. <laughs> um, but the people that are behind him are more than capable, and Berkshire will do just fine. So I think that's overblown a little bit. The only thing I'll add is, if you really are considering owning one of these stocks or both these stocks versus an actively managed fund, just know that if you buy the stocks, you just pay the commissions, and that's it. You don't pay any actively managed fee, which is anywhere from 0.7% to 1%. And actively managed funds are not very tax efficient. So if you were looking for money outside of an IRA or 401k, one of these stocks would be worth considering. And I should say that I own both of them. I own both of them as well. I own neither. All right, next up, question comes from Brad. After listening to your Foolish Guide to Buying a Home episode, I felt you left out an important piece of advice. I recommend to all my younger first-time buyer friends to stay within a price range that allows them to afford a loan with a 15-year term versus the more popular 30-year term. At the beginning, making the payments can be tough, but the reward of the lower interest rate and building equity so much faster is worth it. What are your thoughts? Brad, I think that's actually a very good point. Um, and I think the best way to see the differences is just break it down to numbers. So, according to Freddie Mac, now a 15 year mortgage charges a rate of 3.64%, 30 year mortgage, 4.2%. So, you're paying more than a half a percent a year to have the 30 year mortgage. Why would you do that? Because you're spreading the loan over a longer period, which means you'll have lower payments. Um, so, I compared what the payments would be on a $350,000 mortgage, which, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association, is the average size of a new mortgage, all time high, by the way. So, if you get a 15 year mortgage, $350,000 loan, you're going to pay about $2,500. 30 year mortgage, $1,700. So, it's an $800 difference. So, if you choose that 15 year mortgage, you have to be able to afford that extra $800 a month. That said, you'll pay it off sooner. And you'll have a lower overall payment. So, if you look at the total cost of those loans, a 30 year mortgage is actually going to cost you over $150,000 more because you've paid that interest over a longer period. So, I think it's worth considering, but I should say that I've always done 30 year mortgages, but then paid a little extra on the principal because I like the flexibility of saying if something happens and I need to cut back on my payments, I can do that. Yeah, you can always pay more and it doesn't hurt, right? right? 
Yeah, and there used to be back in the old days, you used to have prepayment penalties and that kind of stuff built in. But basically, those don't really exist anymore these days. So a lot of people will pay like an extra payment on a time that's good for them of the year, like not right after the holidays or whenever they spend a lot of money, but maybe in the summertime they make an extra payment, and that'll bring your mortgage down quicker too. But I think it all depends on knowing yourself. I think you know, as Bro says, like that extra eight hundred dollars a month. If you're going to spend it on uh, jelly bellies or vacations or whatever else, or if you have other alternatives like, you know, I can't fund my Roth IRA, but if I get you know, a poor mortgage payment, I could do that with a lower payment. Um, if you're going to use that $800 well, uh, it might be worth it to go with a 30-year mortgage. I also have a 30-year mortgage as well. Yeah. All right, next question comes from Ziv. I was wondering what you have to say about investing very short-term in IPOs just for the pop. It seems that big name IPOs like Lyft almost always pop on the first day. Why not make a quick five to fifteen percent? Am I missing something, or is this foolish? Everybody loves a quick fifteen percent, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sure, we'll always take that. Uh, Ziv, good question. Here's here's the problem with this: uh, those investment banks that underwrite the IPO, they reserve a certain amount of those shares. But it's usually not for you or I. It's usually their big clients, and um, those are. Pretty typically, they get them and they sell it and they get the pop. What happens in a lot of cases, and I went down to um, Discount Broker a year or so ago, and uh, there was a big IPO coming down the pike. And I said, how's it going? He's like, oh my gosh, he's shaking his head in there. And he said, people are putting in orders. They don't realize they're not going to get the IPO price because it's mm. priced at 22 and it opens at 28 You know what I mean? And what happens is if people put in market orders, you got to be very careful not to do that. You're not going to get the IPO price. So Ziv, um, good idea. It's unlikely you're going to get that pop. And I would say, further for the, uh, the Motley Fool in general, you got to remember people, insiders are selling on these IPOs now. Um, they go on their whole market tour and tell everybody how great the business is, and then they're selling off some shares. So, oftentimes, not every time, but the Motley Fool kind of likes to sit back and wait, see a few quarters of how well this company has performed, and that initial pop a lot of times will dissipate. And we did this with Facebook. So Facebook came out, there's a big pop and everything else. We recommend it later and got it a much better price. So I would just say, be a little bit of patient. Probably not going to get that 15% pop. And I'll just point out, if, if they're, you're looking for an academic source on IPOs, the guy to go to is Jay Ritter at the University of Florida. Go to his website, and he has tons of great information and data on IPOs. All right, next question comes from Cliff. In an earlier podcast, Bro mentioned stashing the emergency fund in a CD for a better yield. I always thought of CDs as fixed term, and you can't withdraw them before the end of the term. So, how does that help me in an emergency if I need the cash? That's a good point. Uh, most CDs, however, you can get the money early. You just have to pay a penalty. So, like a typical on a on a twelve month CD, a one year CD is ninety days worth of interest. So, you can get the money but you'll pay a little bit of a penalty. The decision of whether you should go with a CD or not, it's basically look at what's available as just a regular savings account and compare it to a one- or two-year CD. I went to The Ascent, The Motley Fool's website, where lots of good information about banking and mortgages. You can get a savings account that's 2.25%, and you can get a one-year CD that's 2.8%. So, it is a little bit more. You might want to split up your emergency fund, have some in the savings, but some in a one- or two-year CD, because given where rates are now, they're probably not going to go up. Nowadays, actually, the market is betting it's more likely that they will go down. So it might be a good idea to lock in some of your money at today's rates. Yeah, and you can ladder those CDs, so you always have some maturing. If these are short-term in nature, you don't put it all in one at one time, but you spread it out, and then every couple months you have some money coming available, and you can decide to roll it into another CD or, or, or use it if you need it. Yep. 
Next question comes from Daniel. When buying a basket, quote, does that typically mean buy each position so the entire basket is equivalent to a standard position, or buy each position in the basket at your standard position size? Yeah, good question, Daniel. I, uh, when you do a basket, typically, the um, if you add up the all those positions in the basket, they should be one position. So, like, if you want um, exposure to a particular sector, or a, a lot of times. Um, Buffett had mentioned years ago at a Berkshire meeting that he said, you know, pharmaceuticals he thought were good companies, but he couldn't pick the company that's going to develop the next blockbuster drug like Lipitor or whatever else. So he said, here's the way I would do it. So I would just buy five of those big pharmaceutical companies. One of them will do really well. Maybe one won't, but the basket of them will do well. So um, when you look at each position, you add them up. If your whole position size is 3%, then all of them together should equal 3%. Out of curiosity, how many Berkshire annual meetings have you attended? Um, it's a good question. I've been to about, I think about four, so I haven't been to that many. Um, but I think I've watched, they started doing them live streaming now. They have them on Yahoo, so you can watch them. So I've watched one since they've been available there. And the nice thing is the Fool has always usually sent groups of people there. Yeah. So we were live streaming even when they didn't, so we'd watch it. So I feel like I've been to more, but I think it's probably around four. I've been to one, and it's, it's definitely one of those things that if you're an ardent investor, especially a Berkshire investor, you got to do it at least once, and you kind of got to hurry at this yeah, point. Yeah, you should do it, and yeah. it's a fun event, and it's coming up here in May. So yep. it's very soon. All right, next question comes from Kevin. I enjoy your podcast and listen attentively to the episode on the relevance of the four percent withdrawal rule for today's retirement portfolios. I'm 69 years old and am and am anticipating future events that may impact my retirement income strategy. Do you have any thoughts of the impact that required minimum distributions have when a retiree has most of their retirement assets in an account that requires RMDs? The first years don't have much impact on a planned withdrawal strategy, but when one is in their 80s, some serious percentages are required to be withdrawn and taxes paid. Yeah, so um, Kevin's talking about when we had Wade Fow on the show a few episodes ago talking about the so-called 4% rule. And one thing that's important to know is that is for people who are retiring when they're around age 65. So, if you are in your 70s, you could actually take out more because you'll have a shorter retirement. He's talking about with required minimum distributions, you have to start taking those at age 70 and a half. So, what's the percentage of withdrawal there at that first year when you're 70? It's only 3.65%. So, it's pretty low, but it does creep up. So, by the time you're age 85, you're required to take out 6.76%. Again, we're talking about from traditional retirement accounts in 401ks, not from your regular taxable account. So that does get to be higher. But the interesting thing is there's more and more research showing that RMDs are actually really good guidelines for withdrawal rates and that at 85, you can safely take out 6.7% from your account and, and feel pretty comfortable that's going to last as long as you do. And I'll just give you one example. And that was a study by the Stanford Center on Longevity, which looked at 292 retirement income strategies. And the one they decided was the best relied on several factors, but one thing was delay Social Security till age 70, and then use the required minimum distributions withdrawals as guidelines for how much you could spend. So um, it may sound like a lot if you're told you have to take out six, seven, eight percent, but that's actually probably safe based on your age. Now, if you don't need the money, you actually don't have to sell the investment take out the cash, and then rebuy it. You can actually withdraw the investment from your account. It saves you some commissions there. But unfortunately, you are going to have to pay the taxes. 
All right, next question comes from Dustin. I see a lot of public Motley Fool articles pop up around the internet on my newsfeed. Some of those articles are bearish on stocks that are current and even recent stock advisor recommendations. I trust Tom and David's pick, and I know they are in it for the long game, so maybe the discrepancy is on short-term versus long-term. I was hoping you could comment on the somewhat mixed messages I'm getting from time to time from The Motley Fool. Yeah, well, we get this question a lot. Yeah. We do oh, members, yeah. right? This happens all the time. Uh, I'd say we don't have a company line on any stock at The Motley Fool. Um, so we're a Motley group. We have lots of smart people writing for us. We all have divergent views and experiences and insights to bring to those stocks. And we think that we're ultimately smarter because of those. So I'd say when you read somebody else's, and this goes for people outside of the, outside of the Fool as well, uh, often we'll get some uh, questions from people when a short report comes out about a particular company that The Motley Fool really likes. And they say, man, this report came out, it's 100 pages long, and they say how much they hate this particular company. And my answer is, they could be right, and we could be right. Um, you mentioned duration there, or time frame. Um, we're long-term thinkers and investors here, so when we make a pick, we're looking out three to five years at least, and hopefully a lot longer with that pick, where people that have a negative view, particularly if they're short the stock, that's usually a very short time horizon. And they put out these reports because they have to have action on the stock, otherwise they have to buy another short, and that costs more money. Um, so we could both be right, but I would just say, like, we're pretty good. Tom and Dave have a good track record. Um, and uh, But understand the argument. We don't, we don't have a company line on any particular stock. And we would encourage you to read negative things about your company so you have a better perspective, right? Yeah, I stumbled upon one of these examples today. I was trying to see on Full IQ, which is where we kind of aggregate all of our analyst thoughts. Like, I needed someone to talk about Tesla with a reporter, and so I go to Full IQ, and um, it said negative conviction for Tesla, but it's recommended in eight of our services. Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, yeah, that's a that's a mixed message. I can completely understand why our members are confused. Yep. And, and it happens. I'm confused. Yep. Like, I yep. don't know. Yeah. It happens. Tesla is a perfect example of a yeah. company like that because the optionality for this business is so wide. You know, I mean, that's Elon Musk, which there's a lot of things around Elon Musk, and yeah. he makes headlines every day, some good, some bad. Um, but he's ridiculously smart and accomplished a lot. And then as far as the business, there's some debt. You know, They hold about $10 billion in debt on their balance sheet, and there's some questions about that. And then they're launching into new countries and developing new models and self-driving and all this kind of stuff. So there's one of these businesses where just a lot of questions around them, but also a lot of opportunity. So that means there's going to be a lot of divergent uh, viewpoints on that business. And there are within, uh, within the company and outside of it. Yep. All right, next question comes from Brandon. I work for a great insurance company that is willing to pay in full for me to get a graduate degree. That's awesome. It is. I initially thought of just getting a general MBA, but found multiple specialized graduate programs that range from finance to entrepreneurship and innovation. If ultimately a career investing is my goal, what would you recommend? Well, if you're looking to get a job somewhere, every company will have their own take on this. So if you have a specific company in mind that you'd like to work for, I would start with them and see what they favor and what they like. Um, generally speaking, I would say you could even start actually at your own insurance company because insurance companies do manage portfolios, and you may be asking just to work at a different position in your own company. And I would start with those folks and say, which degree should you get? Um, I asked uh, some of the folks here at the Motley Fool who are in charge of hiring for our investing group, and, and the only thing they said that's a company line is that the Fool does not pay more for people who have graduate degrees. Mm. So that's good to know. But then, of the people I asked, they each had different opinions about whether a master's degree was helpful or not. 
one said he he has a bias towards people with a finance degree, but not necessarily. It's not necessary. Um, there are also designations, so maybe the insurance company will pay for you to be a CFA, for example. And there are many uh, folks like mutual fund companies really favor people who have a CFA. Motley Fool kind of mixed on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would say in general in terms of find out where you want to end up and find out what they're looking for. But Buck, you might have an opinion as someone who has an MBA. Yeah, I do have an MBA. They didn't pay me more because of it either, darn it. <laughs> um, no, but uh, yeah, I'd say do what you want to do. I mean, study what you're interested in. When I look across our pool of analysts, we're a pretty eclectic group of people, um, starting with Tom and Dave, who are both English majors, um, and uh, that's a pretty non-traditional route. I think among our pool of, let's say, 35 or 40 analysts, we may maybe have two finance majors which is very strange uh, for a company. We have art history people. We have people with their PhDs in um, you know, chemistry or biology and that kind of stuff. So we have a, I was a sociology major and then got my MBA. So I just say, we like critical thinkers, um, people that can think well and solve problems. And I think whether you get an MBA or a degree or a CFA or something else, um, it shows you have an interest. Do what you like and you'll be a better thinker because of it. Um, so that's what I would suggest. Next question comes from Amar. I am a subscriber to Stock Advisor and have been following the recommendations for about 20 months. As a result, I now have more than 110 different stocks in my portfolio. I think it's getting too much for me to handle, understand, and follow with a full-time job of 12 to 14 hours a day. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. It seems to me it might be more prudent and easier to somehow narrow this down to 20 to 30 stocks and choose index funds for the rest of my money. What are your thoughts? You're higher tomorrow. If you can cover 120 stocks, you'd be like a good member of the team here. Um, this is a question that we get pretty frequently as well, and uh, it, it's a difficult one to answer because it's it's so personalized. Um, Shelby Davis was a great investor, and I know Tom Gardner likes a lot about Shelby Davis, and he often mentions he had he owned 1,200 stocks when wow. he died. And he had a great track record. Walter Schloss was similar. He had a similar amount of stocks, and he collected them, almost never sold them, and did really wonderful, had a great return. Charlie Munger, on the other hand, uh, vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway, is comfortable having billions of dollars in only three investments. So there's a wide range here, right? Um, and I'd say, Amar, it's, it's more about you. So from this question, it sounds to me like you think it's getting too much, and that's OK. That's, to- that's totally fine. Um, I'd say if I had to average across, we have some people that are fine with owning 120 that are in our service, and they love that. It's their passion. Maybe they're retired or they have a lot of time to dedicate to it. There's others like you that are working a full-time job, and they don't want to spend that amount of time. It's fine to cut down your number. I'd say 20 to 30 is probably a pretty good mix um, of stocks. We tell people in Stock Advisor at least 15. Um, I think you know 20 to 30 is a reasonable amount to have there. Um, but if you go a little bit over or a little bit under, that's that's fine too. And then, how do you recommend he choose those twenty to thirty stocks? Pick your favorite ones. Now, I I would I, I would keep pick the, the ones that are going to go yeah. up. Yeah, With, yeah. <laughs> within, I would use Stock Advisor as your guide, and you know we have a core list of stocks that we think are fundamental that people are coming in there. So I would certainly hold that core group of stocks, and then I would hold a list of some from. Tom's side and Dave's side. You can make your favorites, or you can use Best Buys now to kind of indicate which ones that we like the best. And I'd also say, Amar, like we're, we're, we're there for you. Like we're, we're not, um, you know, decontached to these uh, stocks. We're following them for you. So don't feel like you need to do everything. I mean, if something big happens to these stocks, we have the promise and all that kind of stuff. We'll, we cover them for you. So we're there to help you. <laughs> you know, so 
Yeah, that's what I would say. I mean, that's part of why you subscribe to one of our services, that there's someone who's keeping an eye on it, and they'll tell you whether it's time to sell that stock. So, that's why you can have a portfolio with that many stocks and not have to know each company individually that, that intrinsically. Yeah. All right. Uh, Tiger writes, in retirement, what should we spend first and what last? At present, I am 5% REITs, 5% bonds, 10% cash, 25% stocks, and 55% mutual funds. I figure I will maintain that allocation until I finally retire, but I'm not sure what to tap first. My wild guess is cash first, taxable mutual funds second, non-taxable Roth third, and individual stocks with big capital gains last, some I've held for more than 20 years. Well, cash should definitely be first because every retiree should have what we call an income cushion, which is the next three to five years worth of portfolio provided income out of the stock market. And you rely on that every year. And then after you've spent that, that as that year goes on, the next year you replenish it. Uh, the next thing would be, I guess, the types of accounts. So we've mentioned before that several studies have found that when you're in retirement, you'll, uh, your portfolio lasts longer if you tap your taxable accounts first, then usually traditional accounts. And then Roth last. The Roth and traditional can be flipped in some situations, but basically drain your taxable accounts first. I can't really say about the mutual funds because it depends on which what those funds are invested in: cash, stocks, bonds, whatever it is, international, U.S. But I will say that definitely makes sense to evaluate your funds every year. And if you have a fund that has been underperforming its peers for the last three to five years, that's definitely a candidate for where you could get some cash. You'd mentioned the stock, the stocks that you've held for more than 20 years. And generally speaking, you don't want to hold on to a stock just because if you sell it, there'll be tax consequences if it's not a promising investment anymore. But I think what you're suggesting, or what could be a strategy, is if that money eventually will be left to the next generation, it could make sense to hold that on to that for a long time because when you pass on and your heirs get it, they get a stepped-up cost basis, and they won't have to pay those capital gains. And then the last thing I'll say is just you, when terms of what to sell is whatever will bring your portfolio back into balance. Right? You have an asset allocation that you've decided is appropriate to you. After one, two, three years, that's going to change depending on what has performed well and what has not. Generally speaking, you sell what has performed well to bring your portfolio back into some sort of balance. And these days, that would be U.S. large cap growth stocks. They have significantly outperformed most others. And if there's anything that has become overweighted in your portfolio, it's probably that category. Yeah, and you didn't ask this, but to the extent you're gifting some of these things, I mean, cash always makes sense, and that goes at its at its cost basis. But if you have a very something you've held for 20 years with a low cost basis as a stock, that's probably not the thing that you want to gift to your grandchildren or whatever else because they're going to get the same cost basis. That yeah, you it's have. better yeah. just hold on to it, wait until you pass away, or if you are looking to if you donate to charities every year. Donating um, highly appreciated stock is a great strategy. Yep. All right. Next question comes from Ryan. In a recent episode, the advantages of real estate were discussed, largely in regard to buildings and land inside a city. But what about farmland? Does investing in farmland compare differently to investing in buildings or stocks? I believe farmland will behave differently with IRS and other regula- regulations. It has a similar return as buildings, but I believe classified differently. Buck. I had no idea that you would have the answer to this question. Well, I, I'm not the tax expert on farmland versus buildings, but um, I grew up on a farm in Lancaster oh, County, yeah, oh, and okay. my mom still uh, lives there. Um, she's 80 now, so she's not farming the farm. But I, I, this is a broader kind of suggestion as you look at this. Um, we also own some commercial real estate and that kind of thing. Um, 
farmland is probably not going to earn you the return that you want from a from an asset that generates cash. Having worked a farm, at least a small farm, there's larger farms that have some different economics with them. Um, it's a hard business, and you've got commodity pricing, and you've got weather that impacts this, all kinds of stuff that um, can happen on farms. And um, there's a larger move from people, and this is not just a United States thing, this is all around the world, where people are moving from rural areas into the cities. And so to the extent that you're looking to make investments and that kind of stuff, I think to, um, um, to make money off of and for an investment, um, I would probably look towards those places where people are moving. I don't think they're moving out to the farmland, and I know there's other people that um, uh, manage pensions and do that kind of stuff, and they own farmland and timberland, and I think there's some value in that from a diversification and asset standpoint. From an individual investor for a normal person's account, I think probably they have some exposure to real estate with the house and things that they own, assuming you own a house, and to get extra diversification through farmland, I wouldn't suggest it. I don't think it's probably the best course of action. It's my opinion. All right, next question comes from Artie. Regarding the 20-30-50 budgeting guideline you discussed during the Luffy episode, does the 30% for home costs also include utility bills, repair costs, and internet streaming cable costs? Or does it only include fixed costs such as mortgage payments, property taxes, HOA fees, and insurance? I understand it's just a guideline, but I want to track this to determine where to reduce, if possible, to increase the 20% savings goal. I love how people love, they're just like, just tell me what to do. <laughs> just <laughs> Everyone give me loves a guideline. A good rule of thumb. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone loves it. Which is why this one number of the year in the Aloofies are awards. So. <laughs> anyway, so let me remind everyone what the rule is. 20% of your budget should go to savings, 30% to housing, 50% to everything else. Um, so he's asking for the what does what falls under that thirty percent for the housing. If you ask different people, you get different answers. I think it's it's the fixed or mostly fixed stuff that you decide upon when you buy that house. So that's going to be the mortgage, property taxes, and the insurance. Those are things that you're going to have to pay. They're either fixed or they're really not too much under your control. I mean, you can raise a deductible to change your your insurance, but that's about it. Property taxes are just part of the deal. You can cancel your cable bill next week if you need to. Exactly. All right? that so other that, stuff, that the utilities, stuff. that's more manageable. Mm-hmm. You can try to be more energy efficient. You can ch- fiddle with the thermostat. It's more under control. And, and in terms of repairs, that's what your emergency fund is for. And that's where part of that 20% mm-hmm. savings comes from, building up your emergency fund until you have it. So that's the way I would say it. And also, um, just again, point out the other version of this rule, which is the 50-30-20 rule, developed by Elizabeth Warren back when she was a professor at Harvard, before she became a presidential candidate. That was 50% for your must-pay expenses, your needs, 30% for wants, 20% for savings. So for those who also like another type of guideline, that's something to consider, I think. I'll bet Artie's trying to beat that 20% savings. I, I think that's I, what it sounded like. Good job, Artie. Go for it. Go. All right, next question comes from Bruce. I have some very basic questions about stocks in general. How does the money flow with stocks? When a company issues stocks, is that the only time it makes money from the stock? Is there any other time actual money comes back to the company from that stock without buybacks? Are there tangible or other benefits for a stock price going up? When someone purchases a stock, where does the money go? Is there just another stockholder that I'm buying from and not from the company? Yeah, Bruce, you're you're right on. When you buy a stock, if bro's selling it and I buy it, I mean, it's just a transfer of money from me to him and I get the stock. In between there, there's the brokerage that takes a little commission. 
right? And they take a commission on each side of that for the sale and the and the purchase. And uh, so they like it when you trade a lot. Um, you're right. When the company does an IPO, initial public offering, um, and they issue shares, typically, but not always, they will get that money and that goes into their coffers and fuels their growth as a business. Nowadays, we're seeing more and more of these IPO companies where it's actually just a recapitalization, where they've taken money, they've taken venture capital, and they've taken a lot of it along the way, and those people are selling their shares, according to the IPO, and that company gets none of the money. So it's going to pay back the people that had loaned them money. Not all those, but a lot more of them than it used to be. And I generally don't like those as an investor when they come public and they're just giving the money to somebody else. I like it when the company gets it and they can use it to fuel their growth as a business. Um, the other thing I want to make a point about that, and we hear some people that are pretty big on the ESG movement, um, and uh, you'll hear people say, I'm not going to buy that company's stock because I don't believe in what they do. It could be a tobacco company or an alcohol company or whatever else. And that's fine. But I think, you know, according to your question, Bruce, you're not really hurting that company by not buying their stock. Um, they don't get that money, right? That's just coming from someone else. And to the extent you want to make a social stand or, or do something like that, um, I would consider every dollar that you spend discretionary, you know, on a discretionary basis um, is probably more important. So it's more important what you buy every day, where you spend your money, because that's a larger percentage than what you save and invest. And so if you want to be an activist role like that with your capital, consider where you spend all your money, not just what you do with the investment dollars that you spend. All right, next question comes from Ben. I currently have 529 accounts for my son and daughter opened when they were each born. If they don't use all of the money, what are their options? Can a 529 account be transferred to a subsequent generation within the family? For example, their unborn children? Yes, yeah, so Ben, the, the benefits of having the 529 account are that you put the money in, you can invest the money, and when you take the money out, it's tax-free as long as you use it for qualified expenses. If you don't use the money, you can always take the money out. You'll just pay taxes and a 10% penalty on the growth, so not the whole amount. So if you put in 20000 it grows to 30000 you're only going to be taxed and penalized on that $10,000 worth of growth. Also, if, if for one, one of the reasons that you don't need the money is maybe one of your kids got scholarships or they're going to a military academy, there are some ways in which you can get the money back. You still pay the taxes, but you avoid that 10% penalty. Also, it's important to appreciate all the things you can do with the money. So everyone knows about tuition, room and board, but any other things that are considered necessary expenses for attending the college, even computers in some cases, books, supplies, they can be used. Also, if your student decides to live in off-campus housing, you can use that money to pay for an apartment, as long as it comes under the university's stated cost of attendance. So, as an example, for my son, who's going to Virginia Tech next year, hey, go Hokies! Yeah, the cost of attendance officially for for board is $5,478. So, as long as your apartment doesn't cost more than that, you can use that. Now, for Buck's son, who's going to UVA next year, he's gonna he's a higher allowance. National champions. That's true. So at UVA, it's six thousand seven hundred and twenty dollars. So you do have to know that number, but you can use that, and a lot of people don't understand that. So make sure you are using the money as many ways as you can. Then, graduate, didn't use all the money. Yes, you just leave that money in that account. Wait till you have grandkids. Open a five twenty nine for them, and you can transfer the money. Or if only one kid. One of your kids has kids, and the other, the, you, know, you, you can transfer the money to nieces and nephews. 
to cousins. You can transfer it back to yourself, and you can go back to school. As long as it's some relative, you can use the money. All right, and our last question comes from Janet. My husband and I both came late to investing in our late 30s. I would argue that's not not too bad. No, that's not, not too bad. Some. Not as late as yeah. We'd like to give our kids, ages 12, 8, and 5, a better start. We've already taught them about savings, and they each have a small savings account. Now our kids are asking us questions about investing as they overhear us talking about our stocks and brokerage accounts. Aww. It seems like a good time to formally introduce them to investing. Our questions are, what is the best way to set up a brokerage account for them? Should we put their respective names as a joint owner? We don't want them to have control over transactions yet, or should we simply make our own sub-accounts with the understanding that XYZ accounts are meant for each child? Two, do you recommend any fantasy investing account where they can buy and sell pretend shares without playing with real money? Are there any safe games apps that teach kids about investing in a fun way? Yeah, uh, first of all, congratulations. I think. Um, I know that your children will thank you later on in life yeah. for getting them started because, as we know, with investing, this compounded interest is a great thing, and it's really when you start, not even so how much you save, but you know, getting a start at what twelve and eight and that kind of stuff. Awesome. They're going to have such a head start in life. So, congratulations on that. Um, what should you do? I think you should probably uh, consider setting up a custodial account, and so I would set it up in their name. You're going to have you're going to have to oversee that until they're 18 years old. But you know, we did that for each of our kids. But you can go in there, and they can watch you make the trade and do all that kind of stuff. They can see what they own, and um, that's a great way for them to get started. So I think a custodial account is probably the and way to go. And then when they turn eighteen, do the money automatically then goes they, to them? And they it's take out it of over. Hands? Yep, it's all theirs. Then when they're eighteen, um, so and there's that's nothing great. you can do if your kid ends nothing up being kind do. of a clunker. Yeah. Uh, I think <laughs> they're, clunker. <laughs> they're clunker. I don't know. Is that something you would call a kid? Well, I mean, there's a couple ways to think about that. Um, I I would say this is probably not going to be all your assets, right? And so if the kid uh, is a clunker um, and they're going to make some mistakes, you'd probably want them to have them make it with that account before they inherit what you've saved. Because I imagine if you're starting with your kids, you're going to have a decent amount of savings. So they're going to have to learn at some point in time. And so learning with a little bit less is probably better than when they inherit it all and go, I've never done this before. Um, but uh, but anyhow, so I would, I would suggest that as custodial account. And then for fantasy, I would say um, you know caps.fool.com is a good place for people to go here. It's free. They can enter whether they think that stock will beat the market or not. And once they get seven stocks, they'll have a rating and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's a good way to go on and learn what other people are liking and just kind of get them interested in stocks. Um, I'll give a couple other things that my kids enjoyed when they were younger. Um, one is we play the market cap game. And that is you can take uh, 20 different companies, put two rows of stocks there, and we used to give out a dollar for every right answer, and they would just say, which company is bigger? Mm -hmm. So, by market cap. You could have General Motors and Microsoft and kind of go down the list. And the great thing about it is fosters discussions about these different companies. I also, they could they could have hints. They were free. They were always truthful, um, but sometimes misleading. So, they could ask, who has more sales in those companies? And tell them, you know, General Motors has many more sales than Microsoft. They would go, okay, that's the bigger one. Wrong. It's not. We have a discussion about how profitable Microsoft is versus General Motors, and it leads to good discussions about that. And, and the last thing I'll suggest, and I think this is just a great to get somebody interested in investing, is encourage your children to start their own business. Um, and that may sound funny because they're 12 and 8 and that kind of thing, but um, 
They can. You'd be surprised how entrepreneurial kids are. Give them a little bit of seed money, 100 to $200, and let them figure out a business for themselves. They'll learn about shoebox accounting. What are my expenses? You know, What are my revenues and what are my profits? There's all kinds of great lessons that come out. It doesn't have to be a big business. It could be babysitting, dog walking, making lemonade, whatever, shoveling snow. Um, it's a great way to learn about investing and start that kindle that fire a little bit. And the Molly Fool also has a game, a mobile game coming out in the next few months. So keep an eye out for that, Janet. Okay. I haven't played it, but you're looking at me like you don't believe me. <laughs> no, I, I believe you. I know we've been working. We've got we've got people slaving away we on do that have game. And away. It's, I'm well, it sure it's going the next to. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. But uh, do kids like mobile games? They play them these days. I don't. They're probably onto something else, <laughs> <laughs> right? Something we don't even understand. Yeah. The one thing, the one thing I'll say about custodial accounts is, it is an asset owned by the kid. So we talked about how they get um, they get possession of it at the age of majority. But also, when you apply for financial aid for college, assets owned by the kid will are more will reduce your aid more than if it's an asset owned by the parent. For a lot of people, it doesn't matter because they're not going to get financial aid anyhow. But if you think that is in your future, that is a consideration, and you might consider going with the, you just have the account yourself, and you're just going to hand it over at the right time. Can I add something real quick? Yeah. Um, just this works for my kids anyway. Uh, we use Stockpile as our brokerage, and it allows uh, the kids to have a window into their own account, and they can actually make a trade, and it comes to me as the as the guardian of the account or whatever, to approve their trade. So they, that way they can have a little more hands-on, and um, still it's in your control to actually make the trade that they do. And they also do fractional shares, which is important for small amounts of yeah. money. Let's them buy companies like Berkshire or whatever that are high yeah. dollar stock price, but still good companies. That's great. Great. Can you, can't you also easily like gift stock through Stockpile as well? Yeah, that was their that was, that was kind their, of their stick at the beginning. Is you could yeah. buy gift cards in the grocery store and hand them like here's shares of Microsoft or something. Yeah. Um, that's that's kind of a neat little gimmick, but I, I think that there's other aspects of that particular brokerage that are even more um, conducive to investing for kids. There may well be other uh, brokerages out there that are equally good for different reasons or whatever, but that's one that I like, and I like that idea of letting them... They don't do much. My kids are a little young, but I like the idea that they can make the trade, and it just comes to me for approval. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. And uh, Folio, uh, Folio FN has an ability where you can, in one trade... Buy portions of like you know whole portfolio of stocks. So you could put in ten or fifteen, and in one trade they get a spread across that, which is really nice if you have a small amount of money and you want to spread it and get some diversification across a basket of companies. So that's another option for folks. Basket, basket. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Buck, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's I appreciate it. it. That's it for the questions today. Okay. Um, please come back again, huh? I will. You I guys look forward to a it. lot of territory. All right, now it's my part of the mailbag where we talk about the other stuff you guys sent in that is not question related. First up, bro messed up. Uh oh, what did I do? Oh, uh, as Dan pointed out oh, on Twitter, yeah, yeah, yeah. the linebacker who saves ninety percent of his income and is working to teach kids about money is Brandon Copeland, not Cope. Right, I said Cope because his nickname is Professor Cope when he teaches at the University of, at Penn, but. Just a slip of the mind or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so sorry about that. Out of all the things that come out of this face here, <laughs> like, that's not bad. Just one wrong thing. Oh, there are many more. Many more. <laughs> I don't know. I think you've got a pretty good batting average. All yeah, right, thanks. let's get to the postcards. Rich wrote a postcard from Biloxi, Mississippi, which I oh. 
which I guess is our first one from Mississippi, but I've been doing bad about keeping track. Um, he wants to know if any fools want to do a listener meetup at the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting. Oh, that's a good idea. So, listeners, um, if you do, why don't you uh, go ahead and drop us a line at answers at fool.com and I'll try to connect all of you. Seems like a good thing for the Facebook group. Yeah. Okay. We can also post something on the Facebook group. All right. What else do we have? Uh, Jim is still swimming, and he sent us a postcard all the way from Miami with his little. He, he wrote where he swam. <laughs> there he is. Uh, Shoots says hi from Wyoming and did a little fact checking. He's like the Devil's Tower is not actually in this county. Oh. I know. Oh well, whatever. Hi Shoots. Hi Shoots. Uh, Thad sent us a card from Bali. Ooh, what? Hi. And oh, Gene pretty. and Patty are back on the road. They sent us, I believe, is our first card from Rhode Island, and another one from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, which reminds me yes. of a great podcast. Have oh, you yeah. guys listened to the podcast Last Seen? No. It's about the art heist that took place at that same museum back in 1990. $500 million worth of art was stolen, and it has never been seen since. Ooh. It's a really good podcast. It's a good like road trip podcast, because it's a contained like eight-episode story. It's very good. Last scene, S-E-E-N. Highly recommend it. Uh, okay, so summer's around the corner, and if you want to send us a postcard from your travels, we would love it. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Uh, you can also uh, join our podcast Facebook group. It's Motley Fool Podcast. You just ask to be um, let in, and we'll let you in. Uh, or follow us on Twitter. I'm at Allison Southwick. Bro, what are you at on Twitter? It's <laughs> the slightest idea. Uh, at Robert Brokamp, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Rick, what are you? At R. Engdahl. And if you can spell the name, follow me. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Way to go. Uh, yeah, so we, we're totally invested in this social media stuff. So I come hang at Twitter. Come hang oh with my us. Gosh. We're at the cool, we're at the cool kids table <laughs> in the social media world. Uh, all right. The show is edited starkly by Rick Engel. It's another Game of Thrones thing, folks. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's for Robert Brokamp. I'm Allison Southwick. <laughs> Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.